Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. It's Thursday, May 14th. Welcome to Teddy Talks. I'm Joe Wiegand, your host, with my friends here at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. We're delighted to bring you this program celebrating the history of Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Talks, what Teddy wrote, said, or did during his lifetime on this date, and very often a little bit of interesting uh, information from this date in history, very often associated with Theodore Roosevelt's life. It is a beautiful day. It's uh, spring and things are continuing to green up. And with regards to uh, uh, the uh, atmosphere here, I wanted to share these numbers with you. I, I was a bit surprised by them. 64, 71, 84, 91, uh, those, uh, uh, seemingly decennial uh, uh, steps going up from 64 to 91. That's the prediction for the high temperature here in the Badlands of North Dakota from Friday through Monday. Uh, it will get us out into the gardens and finally putting some of those things in. I want to uh, look ahead on the calendar to Monday, May 25th. That's Memorial Day. And we will have a program here at Teddy Talks and Appropriately, I'm sure we'll find uh, some Memorial Day comments Theodore Roosevelt uh, made. And as well, I'd like to encourage you, this weekend, Saturday, is Armed Forces Day, where we acknowledge and celebrate all of the men and women who serve in the various branches of the United States Armed Forces. A combination of uh, uh, the uh, different branches coming together. In Theodore Roosevelt's uh, time, we uh, celebrated uh, uh, Army Day, uh, Marine Corps League Day, Navy Day, and uh, we'll talk about that on Saturday briefly. Looking forward to being with you the rest of the month of May as 26 days with the 26th president uh, continues. Again, I think with uh, the busyness that's uh, mounting here in June, we may go to a weekly uh, Saturday uh, program. And, and at the same time, maybe by June, it's all time that we get uh, uh, busy on some of the other activities in our outdoor life especially. I wanted to uh, celebrate uh, on this date the founding in 1607 of the Jamestown colony uh, uh, named after King James I in Virginia and uh, on this uh, in this time period then 
in 1907. You realize that would be the uh, tercentary, uh, tercentary, it's the, the 300th anniversary of the founding of Jamestown. Tercentennial, thank you. And uh, a great uh, exposition was held uh, closer to Norfolk, uh, uh, downstream on the James River, uh, much of what had been Fort James uh, reclaimed by the swamps and the tidal waters. So that uh, great uh, celebration saw the visit of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, uh, Mark Twain, and Theodore Roosevelt. Different states had uh, uh, displays and, and buildings. The Georgia building was a uh, reproduction of Theodore Roosevelt's mother's ancestral home, now known as Bullock Hall, a wonderful museum uh, in Roswell, Georgia. You can visit um, when, uh, when we're uh, all open and visiting. You can do so in Roswell, that wonderful uh, museum uh, kept by our dear friend Pam Billingsley in the city of Roswell. Wonderful uh, uh, programs at uh, Bullock Hall which also has embraced uh, its responsibility in uh, reclaiming and, and uh, bringing the interpretation to life of the slaves in the slave quarters, uh, uh, vital to the life at Bullock Hall. Uh, in uh, looking at the uh, history uh, of that uh, exposition, uh, uh, it's uh, noted that there was a review of the Great White Fleet uh, at the uh, 1907 uh, event, and that in 1957, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip came. Uh, she loaned the United States a copy of the Magna Carta at that time. She made a speech, the Queen of England did. 50 years later, in 2007, on the 400th uh, anniversary of the quadricentennial, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip came back 50 years later and uh, did again what was done in 1957, a speech recognizing the roots uh, of our country and. England and English law and common law and and also the uh, special relationship that continues. On this date in 1800, the Sixth United States Congress recessed and the process of moving the United States government from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. Uh, was commenced. On this date in 1804, William Clark and 42 men depart from Camp Dubois near present-day Wood River, Illinois to join Meriwether Lewis at St. Charles, Missouri, marking the beginning of the Lewis and Clark Expedition's historic journey up the Mississippi River. And uh, probably no two greater experts on that uh, excursion than our dear friends uh, David Borlaug of Bismarck, and uh, he, the uh, former chair of the bicentennial celebration of Lewis and Clark, and our dear friend Clay Jenkinson, the humanities scholar who brings to life not only Thomas Jefferson and uh, Theodore Roosevelt and others, but also Meriwether Lewis and a wonderful interpretation. In 1906, on this date, Carl Schurz, uh, the death of Carl Schurz, German-American general, journalist, and politician, our 13th United States Secretary of the Interior under James Garfield and Rutherford B. Hayes. He served from March of 77, that is 1877, until March of 1881. Uh, born 1829 in Liblar in the Kingdom of Prussia. He was a German revolutionary. Uh, we call them very often the, uh, uh, the Germans of 48, fighting against the Prussian army uh, uh, and, uh, and then escaping to places like the United States uh, after the uh, putting down of that, uh, that revolutionary effort. And so he came to the United States, uh, came to Wisconsin, entered the Civil War, led troops at Gettysburg, served as a general, uh, served as a United States Senator elected from Missouri, uh, the first uh, 
I believe the first German-American to uh, uh, serve in the United States Senate, correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, Schurz uh, went on to uh, be a, he founded a newspaper in St. Louis, eventually then after his Senate career and after his time as uh, Secretary of the Interior, uh, he would uh, edit the New York Evening Post and uh, uh, later Harper's Weekly. Uh, he led the, uh, helped to lead the Mugwump movement. You remember in 1884, uh, while Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge opposed the nomination of Blaine, and Roosevelt came here to the Badlands and told a newspaper along the way that he'd probably sit out November. Uh, by uh, October, he was back in the fray and advocating for the election of the Republican nominee. The Mugwumps held it against Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, they supported Cleveland or independent efforts, and, and indeed, uh, Carl Schurz would go on to uh, help lead opposition to Grant in the liberal Republican Party that nominated Horace Greeley for the presidency in 1872. And eventually, uh, uh, Schurz would support William Jennings Bryan in 1900 and, and be a leader of the Anti-Imperialist League. Um, so Carl Schurz uh, passed this data. Carl Schurz High School. Uh, in Chicago, Illinois, a National Historic Site. Things named for Carl Schurz all across the country. Well, that brings us to our comments. And again, thank you for your patience, patience and indulgence. If, if you've been tuning in to hear what Teddy Roosevelt said, well, that's the heart and core of this. But for me, I'm continuing to learn about the wonderful network of personalities and, and uh, uh, the actions and activities that framed Theodore Roosevelt's world. So in studying and sharing with you information about his uh, uh, his allies and his opponents and, and the dates and activities uh, that uh, came just before him and during his lifetime. I hope you uh, appreciate uh, that indulgence. And uh, again, every day I'm learning a little something new. Uh, so uh, two sets of remarks uh, today. Uh, we've got a, a speech at the University of California at Berkeley uh, that uh, occurred uh, later in the day, the uh, first speech made on May 14th was after a, a couple of days uh, and nights in San Francisco, beginning the day with a uh, dedication of uh, the Navy Memorial, also known uh, as the Dewey Memorial. And uh, you'll hear in the context of the president's remarks the fact that uh, the first spade of dirt, the groundbreaking ceremony, had been attended and led by President McKinley. Uh, and. Uh, and it's a beautiful uh, monument in Union Square, San Francisco. It's uh, reminiscent uh, of uh, what you see in London uh, to the great uh, British uh, Admiral. And, and uh, this is a, uh, a column atop which is a, a winged victory. So these are March, May 14th, 1903. Mr. Mayor, my fellow citizens, the ground for this monument was first turned by President McKinley, and I am glad to have the chance of saying a few words in dedication of the completed monument. There is no branch of our government in, all, in which all our people are so deeply interested as the Navy of the United States. It is not merely San Francisco, not merely New York, or Boston, or Charleston, or New Orleans, not merely the seacoast cities of the nation, Every individual in the nation who is proud of America and jealous of her good name must feel a thrill of generous emotion at the erection of a monument to the Navy, a monument to the fleet which was victorious under Admiral Dewey on the 1st of May five years ago. 
a fleet which then added a new page to the long honor roll of American achievement. It is eminently fitting that there should be here, in this great city on the Pacific Ocean, a monument to commemorate the deed which showed once for all that America had taken her position on the Pacific. I want you all to draw a practical lesson from this commemoration. We today dedicate this monument because those who went before us had the wisdom to make ready for the victory. If we wish our children to have the chance of dedicating monuments of this kind in the event of war, we must see that the Navy is made ready in advance. To dedicate the monument would be an empty and foolish thing if we accompanied it by an abandonment of our national policy of building up the Navy. And good though it is to erect this monument, it is better still to go on with the building up of the Navy which gave the monument to us, and which, if we ever give it a fair chance, can be relied upon to rise level to our needs. Remember that after the war has begun, it is too late to improvise a Navy. A naval war is two-thirds settled in advance, at least two-thirds, because it is mainly settled by the preparation which has gone on for years preceding its outbreak. We won at Manila because the shipbuilders of this country, including those here at San Francisco, under the wise provisions of Congress, had for 15 years before been preparing the Navy. In 1882, our Navy was a shame and a disgrace to the country in point of material. Uh, the personnel contained as fine material as there was to be found in the world, but the ships and the guns were antiquated, and it would have been a wicked absurdity to have sent them against the ships of any good power. Then we began to build up the Navy. Every ship that fought under Dewey had been built between 1883 and 1896. We come here as patriots, remembering that our party lines stop at the water's edge. That fleet was successful in 1898 because under the previous administrations of both political parties, under the previous Congresses controlled by both political parties, for the previous 15 years, there had been a resolute effort to build adequate ships. The ships that went in under Dewey had been constructed under different successive secretaries of the Navy and had been provided for by different successive Congresses of the United States. Not one of them had been built less than two years, some of them 14 years. We could not have begun to fight that battle if we had not been for so many years making ready the Navy. The last Congress has taken greater strides than any previous Congress in making ready the Navy, but it will be two or three years before the effects are seen. In no branch of the government are foresight and the carrying out of a steady and continuous policy so necessary as in the Navy. And you, citizens of San Francisco, of California, and all our citizens should make it a matter of prime duty to see that there is no halt in that work that the next Congress and the Congress after that and the Congress after that go right on providing formidable warcraft, providing officers, providing men, and providing the means of training them in peace to be effective in war. The best ships and the best guns do not count unless they are handled aright and aimed aright. And the best men cannot thus handle the one nor aim the other if they do not have ample practice. Our people must be trained in handling our ships in squadrons on the high seas. Our people on the ships must be trained by actual practice to do their duty in conning tower, in the engine rooms, in the gun turrets. 
The shots that count in battle are the shots that hit. We have reason to be satisfied with the rapid increase in accuracy and marksmanship of the Navy in recent years, and I congratulate Admiral Glass and those under him and all our naval officers who are taking their part so well in perfecting that work, and I congratulate the enlisted men of the Navy upon the extraordinary improvement in marksmanship shown by the gunpointers. Applaud the Navy and what it has done. That is first class. But make your applause count by seeing that the good work goes on. Besides applauding now, see to it that the Navy is so built up that the men of the next generation will have something to applaud also. I can't wait to get back to San Francisco and revisit that monument at Union Square. The uh, remarks later that day, uh, I believe it was a ferry taken over to uh, Oakland, uh, and then uh, by, uh, by coach and carriage, I believe, to, uh, to Berkeley. The uh, remarks of Theodore Roosevelt to uh, uh, certainly the graduating class there, that May 14th, 1903. And if you've got a, a graduate uh, somewhere in your, uh, in your family, uh, please feel free to uh, share the Teddy Talk today of the President's remarks. President Wheeler, fellow members of the university, last night in speaking to one of my new friends in California, he told me that he thought enough had been said to me about the fruits and flowers, that enough had been said to me about California being an Eden, and that he wished I would pay some attention to Adam as well. Much though I have been interested in the wonderful physical beauty of this wonderful state, I have been infinitely more interested in its citizenship, and perhaps most in its citizenship in the making. When I come to the University of California and am greeted by its president, I am greeted by an old and valued friend, a friend whom I have not merely known socially, but upon whom, while I was governor of New York, I leaned often for advice and assistance in the problems with which I had to deal. When he accepted your offer, I grudged him to you. And it was not until I came here, not until I have seen you, that I have been fully reconciled to the loss. But now I am, for I can conceive of no happier life for any man to lead to whom life means what it should mean than the life of the president of this great university. This same friend last night suggested to me a, a thought that I intend to work out in speaking to you today. We were talking over the University of California, and from that we spoke of the general educational system of our country. Facts tend to become commonplace, and we tend to lose sight of their importance when once they are ingrained into the life of the nation. Although we talk a good deal about what the widespread education of this country means, I question if many of us deeply consider its meaning. From the lowest grade of the public school to the highest form of university training, education in this country is at the disposal of every man, every woman who chooses to work for and obtain it. The state has done very much, very much. Witness this university. Private benefaction has done very much. Witness also this university. And each one of us who has obtained an education has obtained something for which he or she has not personally paid. No matter what the school, 
what the university every american who has a school training a university training has obtained something given to him outright by the state or given to him by those dead or those living who were able to make provision for that training because of the protection of the state because of existence within its borders each one of us then who has an education school or college has obtained something from the community at large for which he or she has not paid and no self-respecting man or woman is content to rest permanently under such an obligation where the state has bestowed education the man who accepts it must be content to accept it merely as a charity unless he returns it to the state in full in the shape of good citizenship i do not ask of you men and women here today good citizenship as a favor to the state i demand it of your you as a right and hold you recreant to your duty if you fail to give it here you are in this university in this state with its wonderful climate which is permitting people of a northern stock for the first time in the history of that northern stock to gain education in physical surroundings somewhat akin to those which surrounded the early greeks here you have all those advantages and you are not to be excused if you do not show in tangible fashion your appreciation of them and your power to give practical effect to that appreciation from all our citizens we have a right to expect good citizenship but most of all from those who have received most most of all from those who have had the training of body of mind of soul which comes from association in and with a great university from those to whom much has been given we have biblical authority to expect and demand much in return and the most that can be given to any man is education i expect and demand in the name of the nation much more from you who have had training of the mind than from those of mere wealth to the man of means much has been given too and much will be expected from him and ought to be but not as much as from you because your possession is more valuable than his if you envy him i think poorly of you envy is merely the meanest form of admiration and a man who envies another admits thereby his own inferiority we have a right to expect from the college bred man the college bred woman a proper sense of proportion a proper sense of perspective which will enable him or her to see things in their right relation one to another and when thus seen while wealth will have a proper place a just place as an instrument for achieving happiness and power for conferring happiness and power it will not stand as high as much else in our national life i ask you to take that not as a conventional statement from the university platform but to test it by thinking of the men whom you admire in our past history and seeing what are the qualities which have made you admire them what are the services that they have rendered for as president wheeler said today it is true now as it ever has been true that the greatest good fortune the greatest honor that can befall any man is that he shall serve that he shall serve the nation serve his people serve mankind and looking back in history the names that come up before us the names to which we turn the names of the men uh, of our own people which stand as shining honor marks in our annals the names of those men typifying qualities which rightly we should hold in reverence are the names of the statesmen of the soldiers of the poets and after them not abreast of them the names of the architects of our material prosperity also
Of recent years, I have been thrown in contact with a number of college graduates doing good service to the country. And as I wish to make it perfectly evident what I mean by the kind of service which I should hope to have from you, and which it seems to me worthwhile to render, I want to say just a word about two college graduates who have during the last five years rendered and are now rendering such services. Governor Taft in the Philippines and Brigadier General Leonard Wood, lately governor of Cuba. When we acquired the Philippines and took possession for the time being of Cuba to train its people in citizenship, we assumed heavy responsibilities, so heavy that some very excellent persons thought we ought to shirk them. I hold that a great and masterful people forfeits its title to greatness if it shirks any work because that work is difficult and responsible. The difficulty and responsibility impose upon us the high duty of doing the work well, but they in no way excuse us for refusing to do it. We had to do the work and the question came of the choice of instruments in doing it. The most important and most difficult task after the establishment of order by the army in the Philippines was the establishment of civil government therein. And second only in importance to that came the administration of Cuba during the three years and over that elapsed before we were able to turn its government over to its own people and start it as a free republic. When tasks are all important, the most important factor in doing them right is the choice of the agents. And among the many debts of gratitude which this nation owes to President McKinley, no debt is greater than the debt we owe him for the choice of his instruments. Such a choice as that of Taft, such a choice as that of Wood, we sent Taft to the Philippines. We sent Wood to Cuba. Both of them, as tested by the standard of our commercial life, poor men. Each man with little more than his salary to keep himself and his family. Each man to handle millions upon millions of dollars, to have the power by mere conniving at, at uh, what was improper, to acquire untold wealth, and sent them knowing that we did not ever have to consider whether such opportunities would be temptations toward them sent them knowing that they had the ideals of the true American, and that, therefore, we did not have to consider the chance of such a temptation appealing to them. Taft went to the Philippines to stay there, not only forfeiting thereby the certainty of brilliant rise in his profession on the bench or at the bar here if he had stayed, but at an imminent risk to his own health, because he felt that his duty as an American made him go, that as President McKinley told me of him, he had been drafted into the service of the country, and he could not honorably refuse. We have seen, in consequence, the Philippine Islands administered by the American official who is at the head of the government and by his colleagues in the interest primarily of their people, and seeking to obtain for the United States for the dominant race that spent its blood and its treasure in making firm and stable the government of those islands, the reward that comes from the consciousness of duty well done. Under Taft, by and through his efforts, not only have peace and material well-being come to those islands to a degree never before known in their recorded history, and to a degree infinitely greater than had ever been dreamed possible by those who knew them best, but more than that, a greater measure of self-government has been given to them than is now given to any other Asiatic people under alien rule, than to any other Asiatic people under their own rulers, save Japan alone. That is an achievement of the past five years which I hold to be absolutely unparalleled in history. 
And when the debit and credit side of our national life is finally made up, a long stroke shall be put to the credit side for what has been done in the Philippines under Taft and his associates. In the same way Leonard Wood worked in Cuba, put down there to do an absolutely new task, to take a people of a different race, a different speech, a different creed, a people just emerging from the hideous welter of a war, cruel and sanguinary beyond what we in this fortunate country can readily conceive, to take a people down in the depths of poverty and misery, just recovering from suffering, which makes one shudder to think of, a people untrained utterly and absolutely in self-government, and fit them for it. And he did it. For three years he worked. He established a school system as good as the best that we have in any of our states. He cleaned cities which had never been cleaned in their existence before. He secured absolute safety for liberty and property. He did the kind of governmental work which should be the undying honor of our people forever. And he came home to what? He came home to be thanked by a few, to be attacked by others, not to their credit, and to have as his real reward the sense that though his work had been done at pecuniary sacrifice to him, that though the demands upon him had been such as to eat into his private means, yet he had worthily and well done his duty as an American citizen, and reflected fresh honor upon the uniform of the United States Army. I have chosen Taft and Wood simply as instances of what other men by the hundred have done. Americans who have graduated from no college, Americans who have graduated from our different colleges, and especially by practically all those Americans who have graduated from the two great typical American institutions of learning, West Point and Annapolis. Taft and Wood and their fellows are spending or have spent the best years of their prime in doing a work which means to them pecuniary loss, at the best a bare livelihood while they are doing it, and are doing it gladly because they realize the truth that the highest privilege that can be given to any American is the privilege of serving his country, his fellow Americans. As I am speaking to an audience with proper ideals, when I say that Taft and Wood have done all this service to their pecuniary loss, I am holding them up not for pity, but for admiration. Every man, every woman here should feel it incumbent upon him or her to welcome with joy the chance to render service to the country, service to our people at large, and to accept the rendering of the service as in itself ample repayment, therefore. Do not misunderstand me. The average man, the average woman must earn his or her living in one way or another, and I most emphatically do not advise anyone to decline to do the humdrum everyday duties because there may come a chance for the display of heroism. I ask you the straightforward, earnest performance of duty in all the little things that come up day by day in business, in domestic life, in every way. And then when the opportunity comes, if you have thus done your duty in the lesser things, I know you will rise level to the heroic needs. Theodore Roosevelt at Berkeley, California, the University of California, May 14th, 1903. I realized towards the end there, I was shouting. I was shouting for my enthusiasm of the words of Theodore Roosevelt, and perhaps I was shouting in the spirit of shouting out to a graduating audience. So Theodore Roosevelt, of course, as a public orator, had no microphones. They would not be uh, devised until uh, after his uh, uh, great uh, public service career. 
But uh, I can just imagine those, uh, those University of California graduates listening to our President Theodore Roosevelt, May 14th, 1903 in Berkeley. We're going to have a wonderful uh, Teddy Talk tomorrow and Saturday. I mentioned Saturday, we will commemorate and celebrate Armed Forces Day. But uh, tomorrow and Saturday, uh, we're going up into Yosemite with John Muir. And so I hope you'll come along for the ride. I'll post a little something later today. If you'll share that, maybe we'll get some, some of John Muir's fans uh, climbing aboard tomorrow. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for being here. Goodbye. <laughs>